Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the killing of Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda, by a U.S. drone strike over the weekend, and speak with Peter Bergen, one of the few journalists to have interviewed Zawahiri's predecessor, Osama bin Laden. The author or editor of eight books, including three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post best nonfiction books of the year, he is a vice president at the New America Foundation, a professor at Arizona State University, and a national security analyst for CNN, and has testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues. His latest book is The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden, The Biography, and we will discuss the apparent close ties to the Taliban regime al-Qaeda has since Zahwiri was staying in a house belonging to the Taliban's Minister of the Interior, which flies in the face of reassurances by the new Taliban in the Doha Agreement that they would not host international terrorists. Then, with House Speaker Pelosi in Taiwan, in spite of China's warnings that she'll be playing with fire and get burned, we'll look into why Xi Jinping is making such a big deal about her trip and speak with Perry Link, one of the world's foremost experts on China's language, culture, and people. He has translated many Chinese stories, writings, and poems into English, and in the 1990s, he edited the Tiananmen Papers, a collection of documents leaked by a high-level Chinese official that helped chronicle the events that led up to and followed the pro-reform student protests in June of 1989. He was blacklisted by the Chinese government in 1996. Then finally, we'll get an assessment of why efforts to bring Trump to justice have been so timid and faltering in the face of Trump's lawlessness, lying and defiance, and speak with Bruce Fine, a constitutional lawyer who formerly served as Associate Deputy Attorney General during the Reagan administration. He was General Counsel of the Federal Communications Commission, Research Director for the Joint Congressional Committee on Covert Arms Sales to Iran, and member of the American Bar Association's Task Force on presidential signing statements. The author of several volumes on the United States Supreme Court, the United States Constitution, and international law, he helped write the articles of impeachment for President Nixon and President Clinton, and is the author of Constitutional Peril, The Life and Death Struggle for Our Constitution and Democracy and American Empire Before the Fall. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Peter Bergen, the author or editor of eight books, including the three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post best nonfiction books of the year, a vice president at the New America Foundation. He's a professor at Arizona State University and a national security analyst for CNN. And he's testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues. And his latest book is The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden, The Biography. Welcome to Background Briefing, Peter Bergen. Ian, thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Peter. And you are 
one of the few, if if the only, Western journalist to interview Osama bin Laden. And when you did interview him, was Ayman al-Zawahiri there, or did you uh, run into him in any capacity? No, he he wasn't there, and and there was a good reason for that. He was actually uh, in prison in Chechnya because uh, he had traveled there, trying to sort of resuscitate his jihadist career. The Russians had arrested him, didn't know who he was, put him in jail for six months. He and his two companions uh, kind of lied about who they were and were released. And uh, so, yeah, he was not in the picture at that time. Uh, John Miller, who interviewed him for ABC News in 1998, did meet Zawahiri uh, during the course of that interview. So he reappeared in Afghanistan. But, you know, one of the things I've been trying to say since this this news broke is that President Biden, I think, really kind of mischaracterized Zawahiri in his statements on Monday night when he announced the, the drone strike that killed ben, uh, Zawahiri. Uh, Biden said that he was uh, instrumental in planning, you know, deeply involved in planning 9-11, that he was involved in the USS Cole attack in 2000 in Yemen, the U.S. embassy's attacks in Africa that killed more than 200 people. I don't think there's really much evidence of, or even any evidence for that. Zawahiri was sort of a marginal player in al-Qaeda pre-9-11. Bin Laden's big idea was to attack the United States. This was not at all Zawahiri's interest. He wanted to overthrow the Egyptian government, his native country. Bin Laden told him about the 9-11 plans when they were very advanced. He wasn't involved in the planning at all, which isn't to say that he wasn't significant. I, I, I certainly don't want to make that uh, the takeaway here, but it, it, it's simply that Zawahiri uh, was the leader of al-Qaeda in the last decade plus. He was a pretty ineffective leader. Um, ISIS and al-Qaeda split, and of course, ISIS was the most effective of the uh, offshoots of al-Qaeda. And, uh, you know, I think if bin Laden had been alive, that split might not have happened. Zawahiri was not an inspirational leader. He was sort of a boring guy. Um, and, you know, they will replace him very possibly with a former Egyptian special forces officer named Saif al-Adil, who has been lived in Iran since 9-11 for a long period of time, maybe back in Afghanistan already. Uh, he is the most likely successor, um, and he may well be a more effective successor than Zawahiri, who really ran the group into the ground. It wasn't doing well when bin Laden was killed, uh, but it's it's doing even worse now. Like, sorry, caveat to that. You know, yeah. The, <laughs> the fact that Zawahiri was living in downtown Kabul, you know, sort of speaks for itself. He was living in a house given to him by the by the Haqqani Taliban. Um, so there's, you know, and he had a fair amount of freedom to operate. So the next leader of al-Qaeda will have this non-uncomfortable situation in Afghanistan to, to regroup. And he's living in the area where the so-called poppy palaces are, Sh Shapur, who the local... Uh, Kabul residents refer to the area as Chupur, the town of thieves. Um, and, <laughs> yes, uh, it's full of sort of gaudy palaces. Uh, you know, by um, they're not they wouldn't look like a palace if you compare them to Versailles, but they're these you know very big, expensive dwellings. Um, and, McMansions, uh, we call them here in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, sort of McMansions, and uh, this so. Uh, uh, and, you know, he he obviously felt pretty, pretty comfortable there because he was recording 
uh, multiple videos which he was releasing, which may have been part of the trail of breadcrumbs that led to him. He was uh, reunited with his family, which is the reason that he got, went to Kabul in the first place, it seems. And uh, those were, I think, two factors in what led the United States to find him. But the fact that the Akanis were hosting him, or he's using one of their safe houses, or whatever, however you want to describe it, what does that say about the Pakistan ISI, since they're very close to the Haqqani network? Would that suggest that the Pakistanis knew about his whereabouts all along? At least the ISI did. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm skeptical of that. I mean, Siraj Haqqani, who runs the Haqqani network, is the acting minister of the interior in Afghanistan, which is kind of probably the most powerful job in the country. It sort of combines running the FBI and the DHS and intelligence in the country. And he is described by the United Nations as being part of the leadership council of Al-Qaeda. So he's these guys are very much in bed with Al-Qaeda. Now, the, would ISI know about Zawahiri's uh, whereabouts? I, I, you know, I, I, there's no evidence for that. I, I don't, the Haqqanis are certainly close to the Pakistani intelligence service, but would they tell them about this kind of information? I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. But what does it say about all of these reports that you get in the press that suggest that there are divisions with, within the Taliban, within the Al-Qaeda, and within the Islamic State, uh, ISIS, etc., that none of them get along with each other. In fact, they hate each other or they want to kill each other. It seems that the ideological glue is pretty real, isn't it? I mean, you know, and most of it seems to have its basis in Saudi Wahhabism. So I'm not sure about the distinctions here. What are these divisions? Are they really real? I, they, I mean, they, I think they're real. I mean, Freud had a, has a marvelous uh, kind of phrase, the narcissism of minor differences. And so, you know, I mean, these groups, certainly to the outsiders, you know, seem quite different. I mean, there is an ideological difference between ISIS and Al-Qaeda, um, which is, you know, ISIS is really pathologically anti-Shia. So, so has the Taliban been in the past. They, you know, massacred Shia when they were in power the last time. But, you know, as you, I think, say, it's their the, the differences are their the differences are much less important than their similarities. And certainly um, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban have been aligned for a long time. And the, start, the strike speaks for itself on Zawahiri living in a Haqqani safe house known to known to be living in Kabul to senior Haqqani Taliban leaders, according to U.S. officials. And again, I'm speaking with Peter Bergen, the author or editor of eight books, including three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post best nonfiction books of the year, a vice president at the New America Foundation. He's a professor at Arizona State University and a national security analyst for CNN. And he's testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues. And his latest book is The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden, The Biography. Well, apparently the two Hellfire missiles that were fired by, I guess it was a Reaper drone, I don't know where, do you have any idea, Peter, where it took off from? Because, you know, they have a long range and an ability to loiter, but the country's landlocked. And... I, mean, I mean, I'm pretty confident that it would have taken off from Qatar because it's the largest U.S. Right. air base, I mean, which is, you know, a thousand miles plus from Afghanistan. It's a long way to go. Uh, or it could have been launched from a, a a ship in the Arabian Sea, but either one of those, you know, something in the region because uh, 
Um, now, where was it controlled from? Not clear, but I, I think the the large American basic gutter uh, would would be the I think leading candidate. But the missiles, the two Hellfire missiles that were fired, apparently didn't have explosive warheads. They had some kind of blades that were unleashed, and that you know, I mentioned the kinetic impact of it chopped this guy to pieces. What's your understanding? Yeah. I, I I don't know uh, that that for a fact, but I mean we do know that no one else, no civilians were killed in the house, and that's pretty. If it was a, if some sort of bomb detonated on the third floor of the house, you know the you'd have thought that the house would disintegrate. So I I think that's a it's a very good question. I I don't know for a fact what kind of missile this was. So right, he's apparently on the balcony. That's how. They had targeted him. Uh, that was his his ritual was to stand on the balcony, and otherwise he was out of sight most of the time. Yeah, and you know he was on the. It seems on the third floor balcony, very reminiscent of Bin Laden, who was living on the third floor and had a little balcony, um, and himself would uh, go out for little walks uh, just outside his house. Uh, so obviously, you know, one of the debates around bin Laden, Biden was opposed to the what Obama decided upon, which was a U.S. Navy SEAL operation. But there was a debate about an experimental drone being used uh, to take out bin Laden in, a decade ago. And that was dismissed because it hadn't been used in combat. What if it missed? What if it spooked the inhabitants? So there are certainly drones that have been developed over the last 10 years that would have you know, but aren't just a you know a large hunk of metal coming out of the sky and with a giant explosion. So that obviously this was a very precise um, and accurate uh, strike. So what do you think then will be the follow-up with the Taliban, who obviously can't pretend that they didn't know about Al Qaeda when they made these <laughs> made these you know they professed that they are no longer tied to international terrorism and uh, yeah. That, you know, I mean, it's sort of blown I mean, up I, in their face. I think you would, I mean, the Biden administration has already said that they've been in touch with uh, the Taliban about this issue. I mean, from the from their point of view, it's a clear violation of the Doha agreement that was sort of the the agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban that U.S. troops would withdraw, which was signed in February 2020 by the Trump administration and then completed by the Biden administration. So this is a pretty big uh, <laughs> exhibit um, suggesting that the ties between al-Qaeda and the Taliban remain quite strong. Well, of course, the dilemma is that much of the Western aid that's desperately needed since the country is so impoverished and people are starving is conditioned on the treatment of women. And the bizarre thing about the Taliban is that they are more obsessed with women's clothing than they are with, you know, taking care of their own people. So you know, what can, I mean, what can break that impasse, do you think? I don't think anything, because, I mean, there was a lot of wishful thinking, which I didn't partake in, about sort of a new and improved Taliban 2.0 that would, uh, you know, react to a bunch of carrots that we dangled in front of them, such as sanctions relief, such as, in, you know, recognition of some kind. And, you know, it turns out that their ideological project, at the heart of which is the exclusion of women from the workplace and education for girls who are above the age of 12. I mean, they've gone through with that. And, you know, the 
all of this, unfortunately, was predictive and predictable. And August 15th will be the first uh, anniversary of all this. And just look what they've done. They've uh, they have not opened schools for girls over the age of 12. They have prevented women from taking any kind of job except very narrow re female related jobs like, key, like like cleaning women's toilets in, in the capital city, Kabul. Um, they have, you know, not the Zawahiri strike speaks for itself. They haven't broken with Al Qaeda. The interior minister, uh, according to the United Nations, is a part of the leadership council of Al Qaeda. So, you know, they're the same bad old Taliban 2.0 that they were before with one couple of differences. One, they're much more adept at using the media. They snowed a lot of people about who they were. They said when they took power, they'd have an inclusive government, which is, you know, basically total nonsense. I mean, the, the leadership of the Taliban is 97% Pashtun, as opposed to the other Uzbek, Hazara and, and uh, Tajik um, uh, large minorities in Afghanistan. Uh, they um, they have implemented their sort of ultra misogynistic quasi medieval uh, ideology, and they have uh, remained tight with Al Qaeda. So, you know, I, uh, Biden can celebrate certainly the fact that you know he authorizes strike, which certainly demonstrates a so-called over the horizon capability. There was a lot of discussion about if the United States pulls out of Afghanistan, how will these strikes be carried out? Since you do need intelligence on the ground. So he can certainly sort of point to that. On the other hand, you know, this is exactly not what was supposed to happen with the Taliban in terms of their treatment of women and in terms of their relations with Al Qaeda and indeed other jihadist groups. Well, Peter Bergen, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Ian, thank you. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Peter Bergen, who's the author and editor of eight books, including the three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post best nonfiction books of the year, a vice president at the New America Foundation. He is the professor at Arizona State University and a national security analyst for CNN. And he's testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues. And his latest book is The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden, The Biography. We're going to take a brief station break, back looking into House Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in spite of China's warning that she will be playing with fire and get burned. If you're on my list, it's just a question of when, when I... Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Perry Link, who holds a chancellorial chair for innovative teaching across disciplines and is also a professor of comparative literature and foreign languages at the University of California, Riverside. He's one of the world's foremost experts on China's language, culture, and people, and has translated many Chinese stories, writings, and poems into English. In the 1990s, he edited the Tiananmen Papers, a collection of documents leaked by a high-level Chinese official that helped chronicle the events that led up to and followed the pro-reform students' protests in June of 1989, and he was blacklisted by the Chinese government in 1996. Welcome to Background Briefing, Perry Link. My pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us, Perry, and Nancy Pelosi is in Taiwan, and obviously... So I, to some extent, I guess she called the Chinese bluff. They had their 
wolf warrior spokesman uh, with the foreign ministry make all kinds of dark warnings that the People's Liberation Army wouldn't stand by idly, etc. So far, World War Three hasn't broken out. But what is it about Taiwan that's got Xi Jinping so exercised? What's the reason for him making such an issue out of this? It's a very good example of something that Xi Jinping can use in order to stoke Chinese nationalism. That island is part of our country. We should have it. This appeals broadly to Chinese people. And then place himself as the front-running hero of the one who is seeking this nationalism, seeking to get Taiwan back. And this is very important for Xi Jinping, especially now, because in the fall, there's going to be a big 20th Chinese Communist Party Congress where a decision will be made on whether or not to allow him, Xi Jinping, to have an unprecedented third term as the top leader. And that, in turn, has its historical roots, which I'll go into very briefly. Mao Zedong, of course, was a flaming autocrat who brought China to its knees in the 1960s. And when Deng Xiaoping, his successor, took over, Deng did what he could to change the system without losing power for the party, but to change the system so that it would be more stable and couldn't be victim to this sort of -of out-of-control cult of personality that Mao had built. So Deng Xiaoping inaugurated a system. He did this behind the scenes, but it was very clear to everybody that it happened, which said that from now on, the top person in the party and the government will have a five-year term renewable once so that the maximum amount of years is 10 in which the top leader can be top leader. And the one who took over from Deng Xiaoping after the Tiananmen massacre, Jiang Zemin, obeyed that rule. And after 10 years, stepped down, handed the torch to Hu Jintao, who, again, uh, obeyed the rule and stepped down after 10 Xi Jinping was the next to come in, elbowing aside some of his rivals in the old Maoist way, but then decided to turn back toward a Mao model for running China. In 212, when he took over, the society was was percolating with protests, and there were economic problems burgeoning. Not really serious ones, but enough to make him nervous. And he came in, I think, figuring, I need to do something. And he's a man of limited education, spent very little time abroad, and really only educated up to a junior high level. His degrees since then were taken in universities that more or less gave them to him on the basis of his being the son of a top leader. But don't let me stray here. He didn't have any intellectual resources to draw upon except the Mao model, which he knew well. His father was a confrere of Mao, and he had come up through the party system in the provinces. He knew how to manipulate that system. And he imitated the Mao model in several ways, building a cult of personality for himself. A little red book that Mao had now has an imitation, a little 
Xi Jinping book and the way he called upon people not in the party, out in the ordinary populace, to turn on the party, turn against the party because they were angry at it, as a way to uh, oppose his enemies within the party. Mao Zedong did this during the Cultural Revolution. That was his main uh, operating model. And Xi Jinping, as soon as he came in, announced a big anti-corruption campaign aimed at ordinary party people around the country and terrified them. But it made him very popular among ordinary people who, for their own reasons, had come to resent these low-level party people. So in all of these ways, he uh, is imitating Mao. But in that process, alienating, first of all, a lot of the rank-and-file people in the party, the ones accused of corruption and punished for it, but also at the very top, people who are his rivals and would be ready to elbow him aside if they saw a good chance for it are there. So he feels this pressure. Now, the Pelosi in Taiwan issue comes along, and he sees it as a way to reinvigorate Chinese nationalism and make himself the hero of it so that those ordinary people at the bottom will continue supporting him, and so that the rivals at the top also will be careful about opposing him, because no one wants to oppose nationalism. So he views it as an opportunity, I think. I don't think he's completely dismayed that this issue has come up. But on the other hand, it's dangerous for him, too. Because if he does make a mistake, or what can be perceived as a mistake by his rivals, then they can use that to be the, in Chinese political uh, jargon, we call that grabbing the pigtail of the leader and pulling him down because of that mistake. So he has to worry about that, too. So long story short, it's a very tense time for Xi Jinping with a big opportunity there, but also dangers there. And this drives his bluster towards warning Nancy Pelosi, don't come or there will be fire that your own hands will be burned by and rhetoric like that. So it is a tense time. And again, I'm speaking with Perry Link, who holds the Chancellorial Chair for Innovative Teaching Across Disciplines and is also a professor of comparative literature and foreign languages at the University of California, Riverside. He's one of the world's foremost experts on China's language, culture, and people, and has translated many Chinese stories, writings, and poems into English. In the 1990s, he edited the Tiananmen Papers, a collection of documents leaked by a high-level Chinese official that helped chronicle the events that led up to and followed the pro-reform students' protest in June of 1989, and he was blacklisted by the Chinese government in 1996. So Nancy Pelosi uh, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post why I'm leading a congressional delegation to Taiwan, and she did mention that 30 years ago, I'm just reading from it, 30 years ago, I traveled in a bipartisan congressional delegation to China where in Tiananmen Square, we unfurled a black and white banner that read to those who died for democracy in China. And she went on yes. to say that the world faces a choice between autocracy and democracy and that the Chinese, the clamping down on Tibet, on Hong Kong, on the Uyghurs, the evidence is pretty right. overwhelming. So... Xi Jinping himself apparently has a timetable for 
China and Taiwan to be integrated, for the want of a better description. Apparently, yes. he says it's going to be complete by 2049. Is that your understanding? Well, that's one date that's put out there, yes. Another date is 2035. These are more uh, ideals than very firm step-by-step -step plans, I think. The reason for the 2049 date is that that's the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. And in Chinese communist culture, anniversaries are very important. So I think that's the reason for targeting that year for the goal of, of completely unifying China. So what's then likely to be the follow-up here? Assuming that the threats to or the warnings that Nancy Pelosi will get burned by this trip, Who's going to lose face here? I mean, the situation came about where the U.S. more or less couldn't cancel the Pelosi trip right. because they didn't want to look like they were backing down in the face of being intimidated right. and bullied by China. So now you've got she's there, and what's the next step here? I mean, Biden did have a long conversation with she, what, I think last Thursday for about two hours and 40 minutes or something. Yeah. What, yeah. what, what do you expect to My be understanding of the genesis of the problem is that she was originally planning to stop in Taiwan, but wasn't advertising that point. And then someone in the U.S. government, I don't know if it was on her staff or the State Department or maybe the Pentagon, leaked the story. And when it leaked, then it became a big face issue for Xi Jinping and therefore for the Americans. And that's, in a sense, unfortunate. It would have been a much better trip if it hadn't been announced in advance and it just happened low-key here we are standing with our friends in Taiwan and then moving on once it became a big issue then yes it became a face contest between the two I don't know what the next step is except to say that this issue will keep going I'm sometimes disappointed when American diplomats or others, including scholars, including people like me, uh, think they can interpret what the consequences will be in elite Chinese politics for something like this. The elite in Chinese politics, the standing committee of the Politburo and the larger Politburo and the number one dawn at the top of it all, operate in a black box. We don't know how things will tilt one way or another inside that black box. And let's even take the blackness off the box. Let's pretend we could see clearly what's going on inside of it. We still wouldn't be able to predict because the rivalries, the sort of mafia style elbowing each other side and so on, is unpredictable. To really be able to predict what will happen, you'd have to get inside the cerebrums of a dozen or so people at the top. And of course, we can't do that. Um, so I'm always opposed to arguments that say Nancy Pelosi should do this or should do that, because if she does this, it's going to affect the Chinese government in this or that way. And it's going to make it harder for the people inside China who are on our side or not. That kind of talk is a bit irresponsible because we just can't predict what inside the black box is going to happen. So given that 
Xi Jinping and Putin, uh, who are supposedly are best friends, although I'm sure Xi Jinping is look, wondering what the hell Putin's got himself into in Ukraine. But nevertheless, they both openly argue that their system is better, their autocracy, that they get things done as opposed to the messy democratic processes. And he's really, Xi Jinping has really been at the forefront of making that argument. And of course, it's a very self-serving argument. And China, of course, is the number one surveillance state in the world where they've used uh, technology to literally be able to control all of their people and their movements and even their thoughts. Uh, So it's a terrible situation to live there. I mean, and also... You know, people are working so hard there with the nine nine six dictate, where you work from nine a.m. to nine p.m. six days a week, and and you do it out of patriotism to serve the state yes. and to make China great. <laughs> Let me use Trump's expression: "Make China great again." Um, <laughs> yes, that's, right. that's what's going on. I find it really terrifying, and I'd hate to think that. China becomes a world hegemon and and behaves in this thuggish manner. So what's your reading on the opposition? Is there any democratic opposition left in China? Uh, Short answer, yes. Uh, I think I agree with everything you just said, and I think it supports Nancy Pelosi's claim that you quoted from the Washington Post piece, that the real contest here is between autocracy and democracy. And that's right. And the claim by people like Xi Jinping and Putin that we have a more efficient system, a better system, a can build uh, intercity high-speed rails systems within two years kind of claim, at one level is true. But it's also very dangerous because when you have a system that has no checks and balances on that elite and sometimes one-person authority, then you risk having happened to China or to the whole world, presumably, conceivably, the kind of mistakes that Mao Zedong made in 1958 when he said, we're going to have a great leap forward and we're going to revamp agriculture and industry. And that led to a famine that killed 30 to 40 million people because there were no checks and balances on the top leader. The farmers in China in 1958 knew that if you follow Mao's advice in how to plant the seedlings, they won't grow and there will be a famine. But they couldn't say so. If you said so, you'd be strung up and burned alive, literally. So they didn't. So when we measure how autocracies are efficient and how democracies have their virtues for being able to separate powers and make wiser decisions. That's a complex question. Uh, And you and I and Nancy Pelosi agree, I think, that the democratic inefficiency system is worth it because in the long run it's much better. It gives people human rights, for example, and it puts out a legal system that is independent of executive power. These are all things that uh, autocracies like China's don't have. But your question was, is there a opposition? On the surface, the opposition's getting smaller and smaller. The human rights lawyers in China have been rounded up and a lot of them put in prison or their licenses taken away. Human rights lawyers that about 10 years ago were doing a lot of pretty good things. And the opposition 
uh, on the internet, critical voices are fewer because it's dangerous to be critical. And when they come out, they have to use code words in order to express themselves. So from all those points of view, we'd have to say that the democratic opposition is dwindling inside China. And yet I'm not totally pessimistic about this because my career studying literature and popular thought uh, from from pre-modern times right through till now, I feel confident in saying that Chinese culture in its bedrock values has certain things that haven't changed. Uh, Criticizing corruption, for example, very popular novels in the 18th century, blaming bureaucrats for being corrupt and for bullying people and things like that, are similar to novels in the early 20th century and to the scar literature that blossomed after Mao and to satire on the Internet today. There's a very, very strong evidence that in Chinese popular values, uh, fairness, justice, uh, and truth-telling may remain as popular values. I noticed during the Winter Olympics, when there was a lot of CCP propaganda coming down from the top about how great uh, China is and the party and Xi Jinping for leading the party, look, we're hosting the Winter Olympics, China's rising on the international scene, and people absorb those values. And there were hundreds of millions of clicks on the internet about that kind of thing. But by chance, around the same time, there was a case revealed in a small town in Jiangsu province of a trafficked woman from the hinterland who'd been kept literally in a sort of cave and literally with a chain around her foot who had produced eight children, illegal children by the one-child policy, eight children for the man who had kidnapped her. And this was revealed, and it became a huge item on the Internet all across China. And more clicks came to that story than came to the Winter Olympics story. So here, if you will, you've got two kinds of value systems one that's generated by the party and comes from the top down and centers on nationalism uh, and to a certain extent on money-making. And I'm not saying those are false values. They are embraced in their real values in people's minds. But you have this other set of values that the party does not sponsor. In fact, much opposes. The party did everything it could to kill that that. Uh, that story of the woman in chains and couldn't kill it. <laughs> it just kept spreading on the Internet. But that kind of thing comes up despite the party's control and expresses a very widely held sense of we want a better society. We want a just society. We want a society where this kind of uh, chained woman event could not happen. And the reason it spreads is not because everybody in China knows this woman. No, they don't. And not even because they're afraid that their relatives might go to this part of Jiangsu province and get drawn in. No, it's because they recognize in the example of that case that uh, the whole society everywhere, including where I live, has this kind of uh, danger of bullies who can operate without the law 
and therefore this story spreads on the internet. So this is a long-winded answer to your question about democratic forces. Very widespread popular opinion in favor of popular values like fairness and justice is still there. The problem is you can't organize it. If you stand up and say, okay, we're going to found a fairness and justice party, and we're going to have meetings on Tuesday nights, if you do that, the police break you up immediately. The police in China, the plainclothes police, are very attentive to any sign of an organization. If, if you say what you want about Xi Jinping, you can even get away with it if it's just your voice. But if you start to organize anything, they crush you immediately and mercilessly. Well, Perry, you know that firsthand since you've been blacklisted uh, by the Chinese government. And I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Perry Link, who holds a chancellorial chair for innovative teaching across disciplines and is also a professor of comparative literature and foreign languages at the University of California, Riverside. He's one of the world's foremost experts on Chinese language, culture, and people, and has translated many Chinese stories, writings, and poems into English. And in the 1990s, he edited the Tiananmen Papers, a collection of documents leaked by a high-level Chinese official that helped chronicle the events that led up to and followed the pro-reform student protests in June of 1989, and he was blacklisted by the Chinese government in 1996. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of why efforts to bring Trump to justice have been so timid and faltering in the face of Trump's lawlessness, lying, and defiance. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Bruce Fine, who's a constitutional lawyer who formerly served as Associate Deputy Attorney General during the Reagan administration, General Counsel of the Federal Communications Commission, Research Director for the Joint Congressional Committee on Covert Arms Sales to Iran, and a member of the American Bar Association's Task Force on Presidential Signing Statements. He has authored several volumes on the United States Supreme Court, the United States Constitution, and international law, and helped write the articles of impeachment for President Nixon and President Clinton, and is the author of Constitutional Peril, The Life and Death Struggle for Our Constitution and Democracy, and his latest book is American Empire Before the Fall. Welcome to Background Briefing, Bruce Fine. Thank you for inviting me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Bruce. And what do you make of of this whole struggle to bring Donald Trump to justice? Because, I mean, if you go through his business career, he was always one step ahead of the sheriff. He was tutored by Roy Cohn. And in his political career, he's adopted the same sort of slash-and-burn preemptive tactics. And for the life of me, I don't understand why it is that he has escaped justice for so long. He's had two impeachments against him, uh, which he dodged bullets on. And now you've got this special House committee, select committee, looking into him. And apparently that's prompted the Justice Department to start looking into him. But why has it taken so long? And why 
has there been a kind of, I don't know, timidity? I don't know how to describe it. What would you say? Well, I think uh, in part, Ian, most people in Washington have skeletons in the closet. So they're always thinking, well, if this precedent goes forward, could it come back to haunt us? Because uh, very few people in Washington have clean records. They're, they're not Ralph Nader's, so to speak. And there's also a timidity in part because uh, there's a general, what I call, pandemic of constitutional ignorance. They do not understand uh, the history and use of congressional oversight uh, and power and sanctions, including uh, putting people in jail if they defy congressional subpoenas. And they've grown up so long with this belief that the president is a virtual emperor and it's above the law, you can invoke privilege, state secrets, that they come to believe that they're like little serfs on plantations. So they don't even understand what powers they're foregoing to prevent the president from being held accountable. This truly is stunning to me, who was uh, born and raised in Washington with the idea, contrary to President Nixon, when the president does it, that does not mean it's legal as uh, he wrongfully, President Nixon wrongfully told David Frost that uh, in the United States, uh, the rule of law is king. The king is not law. Uh, that when you're in the government, your client is the Constitution, not the occupant of the Oval Office. Uh, and in my view, there's been a dereliction of duty, if you will, certainly of Congress and to some degree the Justice Department and being so hesitant in moving forward against President Trump. For example, it is truly stunning to me that the Justice Department and the Congress, the committee, have not yet subpoenaed uh, Mike Pence, uh, who we know was in at least a half a dozen conversations one-to-one -one with President Trump and witnessed firsthand the efforts of Trump to browbeat him into flouting his obligation under Article 12 of the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act, you know, to count electoral votes on January 6th. And what uh, Mr. Uh, Pence can say would be decisive in terms of the attempt is of, to subvert the constitutional process is indeed to engage in insurrection against the United States. Uh, insurrection includes efforts to thwart through force and violence or intimidation uh, the implementation of laws of the United States. And why there's still to this day as we're speaking, still no subpoena to Mike Pence, truly baffling to me. It would be as though in the Watergate cover-up trial, you know, there had been no subpoenas to Haldeman, Ehrlichman, uh, Mitchell, John Dean, all the principles. I mean, that would be absurd. Uh, and that shows you that between the Watergate cover-up trial, which is now almost 50 years old and today, you know, we've truly turned the presidency into an emperor. Uh, we're back to the stages of King George III before the American Revolution. You know, the king, the president can do no wrong, which is very, very uh, dismaying to me, whose entire life has been about enforcing the Constitution, especially where it's most urgent uh, as applied to the highest officers of the land. So, Bruce Fine, I'm hearing from a former DOJ officials who still have contacts within the DOJ, and I'm sure you also have such similar contacts, that Merrick Garland is concerned that if he indicts and tries Trump, there could be a civil war in this country. Have you heard anything to that effect? I mean, uh, is that what's governing this kind of caution? You never can tell. I do. I believe it's less that than maybe even President Biden worrying Hunter Biden. I mean, Biden himself has some problems uh, with regard to his background. Uh, again, his kids enriching themselves 
Uh, he may not want to open that can of worms. But the argument about a civil war seems to me utterly preposterous. Uh, we have had at the Department of Justice over 800 arrests, uh, more than 200 convictions of those implicated in the storming of the Capitol by force and violence on January 6th to prevent the constitutional processes for peaceful transfer of presidential power. And you know what? That has not provoked a civil war. Uh, the vast majority of those who have been convicted or charged have voiced repentance, maybe some of it's insincere, but it's not come close to provoking a, a civil war. Um, and indeed, in my judgment, um, if you have to abandon the Constitution to prevent a civil war, well, we had a civil war once, and well, it was bloody and it was very uh, tragic, but I'm glad we got rid of slavery. And there are a lot of tens of millions of people who are glad we had to fight the war in order to do justice. And if that's what it has to come to, uh, then we have to move forward anyway. A justice cannot be abandoned and rationed because people pledge they're going to be violent. I mean, that would be the end of the rule of law. Uh, that would just say, as long as you have a political following that says, we'll resort to violence unless you do what we want to do, then we're, we, we no longer have a civilization. We might as well be anarchists out there, out in the street. That's what's going to determine our liberties. So even if that's brooded about as a possibility, and my belief is it's completely fanciful, um, it's simply not acceptable that we let people uh, extort concessions from the law by threatening force and violence. We cannot bow to such thuggery. And again, I'm speaking with Bruce Fine, who's a constitutional lawyer who formerly served as Associate Deputy Attorney General during the Reagan administration, General Counsel of the Federal Communications Commission, Research Director for the Joint Congressional Committee on Covert Arms Sales to Iran, and a member of the American Bar Association's Task Force on Presidential Signing Statements. He also has authored several volumes on the United States Supreme Court, the United States Constitution and International Law, and helped write the articles of impeachment for President Nixon and President Clinton. And he's the author of Constitutional Peril, The Life and Death Struggle for Our Constitution and Democracy. And his latest book is American Empire Before the Fall. So in terms of Trump himself, I mean, he was always considered a joke in New York. And I guess to some extent to her peril, uh, Hillary Clinton and a lot of Democrats thought he was a joke. So, and then he, of course, caught all of the many Republican uh, competitors in the in the primary by surprise because he was a reality TV star. So he's able to, because of his experience with reality TV, knock everybody off the island and get the presidency, which he probably didn't want because I think he was essentially running as a joke or as a scam to improve his brand, so he figured he'd make a ton of, ton of money out of the Trump brand, and lo and behold, he becomes president, and it's completely catastrophic tenure. So it's almost a reflection on America, isn't it, Bruce? How, how is it that so many people in this country believe the big lie that Trump won the election? I mean, what's happened to the country itself? Well, I agree, Ian, uh, that you know, a country gets uh, the, the country it deserves. Uh, and huge numbers of people, uh, for whatever reasons, ulterior motives, you know, they hate the establishment or, you know, they're disappointed in their lives. And so Trump comes along and he makes them feel good because Trump's at their level, a purely hormonal creature. He has no reflective or deliberative capacities whatsoever. And unfortunately, I believe in part, this is explained by the deterioration 
the plunge in our educational system. We don't teach anything anymore. Don't teach any history. Don't teach any literature. Don't teach any philosophy. You know, everything is about number counting and, and identity. And, and nobody asks, but can they read and write? I mean, I don't really care what anybody's sexual identity is. I don't care your race, religion. You're in there to learn. That's it. Uh, but now the, 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 the IQ quotient collectively of the country plunges year after year. Literally, they know nothing. And so it's easy to be beguiled, easy to believe there's nothing in, about truth if you've never been educated. And, and I say each year, I believe American society collectively becomes more and more ignorant, despite the fact that with the Internet, you have access to all the greatest ideas and wisdom in the world. But the Internet is used to play stupid games and to watch pornography or something instead of downloading all the, the great books and, and, and great wisdom that's accumulated for centuries by people who are deliberative rather than hormonal. And so that's the society we get. And that's in part the product of the digital age. But, you know, you can only blame it on yourselves. I don't blame it on a computer or the Internet. It's neutral on this whole issue. It doesn't dictate how it's used. But unfortunately, it enables people with very low and depraved uh, ambitions um, uh, to uh, to move forward and take the country down with it, because you cannot have a constitution whose primary premises are procedural fairness um, with people who don't even understand what procedure is about. All they care is the end game. You don't have to have trials anymore. You don't have to think. You don't have to have evidence. You just jump up and down and scream and yell and wave a gun. And you should be able to get your way. And unfortunately, a lot of people raised and they believe that, you know, they don't believe in due process anymore. Certainly, Mr. Trump, you know, never believed in due process, still doesn't today. You know, when he went and had 60 cases uh, challenging uh, the electoral results after the November balloting 2020, he lost every single one of them, including many, many before his own appointees. No, well, that's not good enough. Uh, let's try another way. Uh, as Rudy Giuliani said, trial by battle. How about force and violence, you know, to win the election, uh, which is what exactly what he attempted, including, in my judge, in my opinion, the attempted murder of Mike Pence. Uh, my belief is that you could charge Trump today with attempting to murder Mike Pence, knowingly allowing and permitting an armed crowd that he knew was armed and said he didn't care because they weren't coming after him go up and while he was watching the violence on Capitol Hill, where Mike Pence was located, infuriated and awakened even more animosity towards Mike Pence at the time that they were trying to hang him by disparaging him and claiming he was a coward and he was a wimp and he wasn't doing the right thing by refusing to count the state certified electoral votes. That's an attempt to kill somebody. Um, I was at the time of these events of January 6th was a block away on Constitution Avenue. I was in a TV interview, and I can guarantee you that crowd would have hung, killed Mike Pence if they got a hold of him. And it was an attempt that Mr. Trump has never, ever disowned, not then, uh, not now. And that's one of the reasons why we need to know from the words of Chipolone, when you reported to the president, there's violence ongoing, something's got to be done. I don't want to hear executive privilege. There's no privilege. Your loyalty to the Constitution. And this is not seeking legal advice. This is trying to prevent a crime. Uh, we need to know exactly what Trump said in response. Not, I can't tell you that Trump said, he kind of said X, Y, Z, which is a reason why, in my view, the hearings haven't gotten to the level yet that's going to precipitate 
know, the complete accountability of Mr. Trump by having his own words come back and haunt him rather than just second or third hand testimony from second and, and third tier witnesses. That's not good enough. And I I accuse the January 6th committee of dereliction every bit as much as Trump was derelict on January 6th. Why are not you asserting your full powers? The Supreme Court has asserted this power for a century in a case called McGrain versus Dougherty. Why aren't you asserting the powers of the House Judiciary Committee that impeached Nixon, where they issued four subpoenas to him? And when he didn't comply, he really wrote articles of impeachment against him. And of course, the Judiciary Committee at that time hauled the Minerva Attorney General, uh, former Attorney General John Mitchell, all of them are there. Uh, why are you so hesitant? And I say, the only thing I can think of uh, is this worry. Well, hey, they're going to come after us, the Republicans are, when they get in control and we don't have a precedent. Well, you know what? Your duty is the Constitution, even if it hurts yourself or your party. Well, the Republicans will do that in any case. We know that they'll be having hearings around the clock into Hunter Biden. So just in the last few minutes, Bruce Fine, just tell our audience what the Democrats and the select committee, after all, they do have a couple of Republicans on it, Liz Cheney and, and Adam Kinzinger, what should they be doing? They should have subpoenas out today to Mr. Trump, to Mike Pence. They should be calling also with subpoenas for Kevin McCarthy. Uh, for James Jordan, for the three or four others who met with Trump on or before January 6th to discuss and plot about, you know, this competing slate of electors, which is also to defraud the United States out of the true electoral results of 2020. And they should re-interview Chipolo and say, you can't assert executive privilege to refrain from telling us what Trump said when you alerted him to the ongoing violence. We need to know that. There is no privilege. Uh, in my view, also, we should need to hear from Mark Meadows. Uh, why isn't he uh, one of the witnesses? Uh, he doesn't have any privilege. Uh, his chief of staff, he assumed the same position of H.R. Haldeman. And Ian, I watched H.R. Haldeman testify for hours before the Watergate committee. You know what? No privileges. So that's what needs to be done. Further, in my view, the committee needs also to be considering drafting a resolution uh, for Congress, a concurrent resolution that finds that Mr. Trump engaged in insurrection against the United States on January 6th and before by attempting to thwart implementation of the Electoral Count Act and the 12th Amendment, uh, providing the way in which the president will be elected and is therefore disqualified from holding any further office in the United States under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It's time to invoke that prohibition, which is clear as day and is intended to prevent the Constitution from becoming a suicide pact by enabling its opponents to uh, sit in the Oval Office. That is an urgent mission for this January 6th committee. Well, Bruce Fine, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Bruce Fine, who's a constitutional lawyer who formerly served as Associate Deputy Attorney General during the Reagan administration as General Counsel of the Federal Communications Commission, Research Director for the Joint Congressional Committee on Covert Arms Sales to Iran, and a member of the American Bar Association's Task Force on Presidential Signing Statements. 
He's authored several volumes on the United States Supreme Court, the United States Constitution, and international law, and helped write the articles of impeachment for President Nixon and President Clinton, and is the author of Constitutional Peril, The Life and Death Struggle for Our Constitution and Democracy, and his latest book is American Empire Before the Fall. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine